Good afternoon, it's Dr. Dan Guerra once again from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest, and it's still the 25th of April, 2022. I just gave you a, a little over a 15-minute mini-lecture to encapsulate and review where we were in the dialectical interaction between looking at two different systems, a rodent model versus human, and then also discussing how the alteration of expression of a unique transcription factor, which is involved in proliferating peroxisomes, the PPAR, because of its associated transcriptional activation of genes responsible for lipid metabolism, which occurs within the peroxisome, how the overexpression of that particular transcription factor gave you opposing results, contrarian results between the two animal systems, the mouse model and the human pathophysiology of obesity. So now I'm going to continue on. I wanted to make that brief, and the um, that's why I made it a short lecture. So let's just continue on here. Now, there are other actions I want you to understand here, underlying biochemical mediated events about this PPAR gamma and some of the genes that that transcriptional activator is associated with. And what these other alterations are in the cell and in the system are alterations of inflammatory responses. And of course, those are going to be mediated by their own set of proteins, the IKK NF kappa B, the C jun N terminal kinase, that's the junk activator protein one AP1 pathway. Those two. Now, FABP4 enhances along with the activity of those two transcription factors, the hydrolytic activity of the enzyme in the adipose known as HSL, hormone-sensitive lipase. So it turns out FABP4, which again is transcriptionally induced upon the activation of PPR gamma, is indeed an adipokine, and indeed it enhances insulin sensitivity. But on the other hand, the expression of that protein is, is critical for adipocyte differentiation. And as I said, its expression and its activity, therefore, is controlled by PPAR gamma. And the agonists which turn on that system, the PPAR gamma, are fatty acids and insulin, as well as dexamethasone, which is what? a corticosteroid, okay? So insulin down-regulates only microvesicular-free mediated and microvesicular-secreted FABP4. But the release of FABP4 via the adipocyte-derived microvesicles is a relatively small fraction and therefore has very little activity. So see, this is when we get into the molecularity of the system. Here I'm telling you about the gradations of the control over the expression of the protein have another plenum of effects. Okay. Furthermore, FABP4 double knockout rodent models exhibit a defect 
in the beta adrenergic stimulated insulin secretion pathway from the pancreas. And this is even in lean conditions, not under a high fat diet or in an obesogenic state. So that suggests that the FABP4, at least in the animal model, has some control over beta cell function. And that means that the FABP4 has to be in circulation because the beta cell doesn't express it. Okay. <clears throat> now, human studies show something similar. Human studies show that higher serum levels of fatty acid binding protein P4 correlate with higher insulin response sensitivity in type 2 diabetics. And a higher insulinogenic index in healthy non-diabetics. Now, these are humans. Okay? And yet, FABP4 levels do become suppressed upon refeeding or insulin increase in the blood, which makes sense. The fatty acid binding protein is inducing insulin production and release from the beta cells of the pancreas. When insulin goes up, that induction is stopped. It's shut down. Right. It's a normal feedback inhibition. Right? So I wanted you to get that full understanding of just that one transcription factor, PPR gamma, one of its transcripts, uh, fatty acid binding protein P4, and its plenum of effects in the adipose and circulation, which I just covered, and in the liver. And then comparing and contrasting a strong contrarian perspective, a dialectical contrarian perspective between the animal model and the human studies. Okay. So I'm, I'm telling you this because it's absolutely important when you start looking at research, science, publications, to realize it's not that all of the research is describing the same regulation, the same mechanism, mechanism, and therefore the same paradigms, which can become unfortunately dogma uh, in a given scientific uh, study, a series of studies. It's that if you look at all of the papers published, that's how you put together the real event ontology. You have to understand the details. In that way, um, you could really help out the pharmaceutical industry, in my opinion, because rather than going after targets such as transcription factors, which have all of this pleiotropic effect, you need to be looking downstream. And I would even argue, I have ideas about looking at epigenetic alterations. Right? And this is another whole avenue of controlling gene expression not to use it so much as controlling it once a person has a disease, but to go back and study it in the pathophysiological environment, using humans as the source of uh, the you know of the data. In other words, doing clinical trials of people with diabetes and with with obese associated diabetes and people with obesity that do not have diabetes, people who are lean with diabetes and people who are obese and lean, uh, or excuse me, are lean and healthy. Okay, all four of those. I think I covered all four of those. 
And then we can look at alterations in expression of transcription factors, methylation patterns, acetylation patterns in different tissue types. And even in the blood, if that turns out to be a good biomarker, such as with the FAPP4. That's what I'm getting at. I also mentioned to you last time that fat deposition between animals, uh, rodents that is, and humans is substantially different. So in the human <laughs> white adipose tissue, it's found primarily in subcutaneous adipose. That's known as SAT. And you find it abdominally. You also find it gluteofemorally and intramuscularly. So white adipose tissue is also found in the VAT. That's the visceral adipose tissue. And visceral depot are also omental, mesenteric, retroperitoneal, gonadal, and of course, pericardial. When you find brown adipose in humans, it's almost exclusively in the supraclavicular anatomical regions, okay? But also in the subscapular region. Those fat depots are linked to alterations in developing obesity-related morbidities and mortality. The ones that are most associated with disease in humans are white adipose tissue, particularly in those two regions that are of the utmost importance, right? Abdominally at one level and retroperitoneal. Those are the two regions where if you get a lot of depot fat there, that is the kind of anatomical positioning of, of where the lipid accumulates that can be correlated to cardiovascular disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, etc. Not in those other regions. In fact, when you put on fat gluteofemorally, that's around the buttocks and the, and the thighs, that kind of high adiposity and obesity is not associated with getting T2D. And what did I tell you before? Our animals and plants, animals and plants, um, rodents and humans have distinct places where they put on lipid. So that I just talked about where the animal put on lipid. In the fat pads of the mouse, the fat pads are where the mouse puts on adipose. There are anterior subcutaneous depots, cervical, axillary, and also that interscapular. And that's where you can find, in the interscapular is where you find brown adipose tissue. But of course, mice also put on lipid in the mesentery and the mediastimic and the retroperitoneal, epididymal, particularly the gonadal the perirenal, and then there's several posterior subcutaneous depots, the dorsolumbar, uh, the inguinal, where white adipose tissue is very common, and also in the gluteal, where you find white adipose tissue. So you have visceral depot, but you also have the anterior subcutaneous and posterior subcutaneous. So it's much more spread out in the mouse model and in rodents in general. That's the key feature I'm trying to give you here, okay? You notice then how the animal model, prone to high-fat diet-inducing fatty liver, is not at all associated anatomically to the way that humans put on fat. 
because of the different anatomy and morphology of the two organisms. And I already told you about the tremendous difference in the central nervous system, which is, you know, intuitively obvious. So I want you to understand that when you have multiple morphological and phenotypic differences between uh, phenotypes, particularly between one animal and another, like a rodent and a human, the number of genes that would have to be differentially expressed to allow for that developmental difference between a rodent and a human, then all the differentiation require a tremendous amount of alteration of chromatin remodeling and induction of gene expression. At the early stages, right after embryogenesis in utero, throughout gestation, and then, of course, for the rest of the life of the animal, be it a human or a rodent. And the central nervous system in the humans, remember, has a very powerful, um, I've argued, neuroepigenomic um, associated mechanism, which is involved in the limbic system, prefrontal cortex, associated consciousness, and free will. And all of that then is a dramatic difference between the animal model and the human. And so, again, I'm not going to make that argument again for a long time. I just want to make sure it's clear to you uh, that this isn't just my perspective. This is what the literature tells us. So let me go back here and talk about the dialectic of the biochemical view of biological systems. And let me make some, um, oh, let's call them premises. And then we'll do some conclusions. Premise number one, to understand biology, you have to comprehend chemistry. To understand chemistry, you need to have some understanding of subatomic particle physics. To understand that component of physics, you must comprehend basic algebra, geometry, and calculus. I told you the three mathematical iterations of the epigenetic writing, reading, fluxation. And of course, to understand mathematics, you must use logical reasoning. And that's what the dialectical analysis allows you to do. So the conclusion to those premises is the following, doing a dialectical analysis here. Purpose of the arc of lectures I'm doing now, and hopefully always, is to provide a depth of biochemical perception. Biochemical percepts include the enlightening apprehension of processes found in natural biological sources and an imperative consequence of this by using experimental evidence derived from genetic and physiological inquiries. Secondly, morphological characteristics of human form provide the vestibule for the discovery of anatomical features 
that underlie the physiological processes. Genetic and genomic architecture lay the foundation for inheritance, reproduction, defense, is in the immune system, and development and differentiation. Biochemical architectonics are the language used in the living system that obtains all biological properties of a given species, and indeed at the individual level. Now in chemistry, the core event ontology is bonding, chemical bonding. So to get a handle on this, I want to mention briefly molecular geometry. There is a system that's been described in chemistry called VSEPR, which stands for valence shell electron pair repulsion. And it's used for forecasting the shapes of molecules based on the amount of electron pairs which are circulating a central atom. Knowing the geometry of the molecule is, of course, vital to understanding its reactivity. This VSEPR technology provides, or VSEPR, we'll call it technology, although it does generate a lot of technology. Uh, this VSEPR intellection, I should say, provides a simple method for predicting the geometries of main groups of compounds. And the VSEPR theory, this valence shell electron pair repulsion theory, is applied when predicting the combinations of electron doublets around atoms in both simple and in symmetric molecules. And in them, the central atoms attach to two or more other atoms. And the shapes of those key atoms relative to the electron density and the non-bonding electrons will double the influence on the shape of that valence shell electron pair repulsion. See, I'm, so I'm giving you now some of the reason why we need to understand chemistry. So specific three-dimensional arrangement of atoms and molecules is what I mean by molecular geometry, okay? And you can define it as a position of the atomic nucleus in a molecule. Of course, you're going to use various instrumental techniques. You can use X-ray crystallography, for example. But there are other experimental techniques which can be used to tell us where the atoms are located in the molecule, such as NMR, ESPR. Using those advanced techniques, then, you can look at the structures of proteins, protein enzymes, nucleic acids like DNA and RNA, and even to some extent lipids. And from that, you start generating a library of molecular geometries. And you get these molecular geometries for multiple sensoria, because those are the first things that people wanted to look at. So what's the chemistry of vision? What's the chemistry of scent, taste? What's the chemistry of drug interactions? What's the chemistry, chemistry of enzyme-controlled modifications of metabolism at the level of this three-dimensional arrangement and this molecular geometry? So it's common when you're doing these studies to use simple formula. 
and the formula like AX4, AX2E2, where the X stands for bonding pairs and the, the capital letter E denotes lone pairs of electrons. So that whole convention in chemistry is called the AX method, AXE method. So molecular geometry is associated with specific orientation of bonding atoms. And any kind of analysis of electron distribution of orbitals, where that distribution is found for these electron clouds, will usually give us a correct molecular geometric determination. And so you, using Lewis diagrams, you can start putting together how specific molecular geometries will alter reactivity. Again, why am I talking about all this? I'm doing it because you need to understand that various atoms in association with their electrons and the bonding that the atoms do within a molecule will give you geometries like octahedral, trigonal bipyramidal, tetrahedral, and trigonal planar. Those are four common ones. Okay. So valence shell electron pair repulsion theory then says electron pairs around a central atom arrange themselves so they can be as far apart as possible from each other to avoid steric hindrance. So the valence shell is the outermost electron-occupied shell of an atom, as you probably remember from college days. And that's actually where the electrons are involved in bonding. So in a covalent bond, a pair of electrons is shared between two atoms. In a polyatomic molecule, several atoms are bonded to a central atom and they're using two or more of those electron pairs. So the repulsion, the steric repulsion I talk about, is between negatively charged electron pairs that are participating in the bonds. Or if they're not participating in the bonds, then they're out there as lone pairs. And because of that, it forces those lone pairs to spread apart as much as they can to avoid that repulsion chemistry. <coughs> okay, so I'm going to check my time here. I think this is kind of fun to go through this. And again, I'm doing it not, not so that you have to, you know, get more uh, well-read in chemistry, although there's nothing wrong with that. It's so that you understand the true nature of biochemistry. That is the authentic nature of biochemistry and living systems. Because I argue you have to know the chemistry and the biology before you can talk about biochemistry. And you can't know biology unless you know biochemistry. Full stop. So the idea of electron pair repulsion is often demonstrated by using a model of inflated balloons. If you tie them together at the level where the neck of those balloons are, each balloon represents an electron pair. So the balloons, of course, when you put them together like that, tied them together, they will minimize the crowding because of the gas in the balloon. And they, of course, are found to spread apart as far as possible. And, of course, <laughs> linking in the Vesper theory of molecular geometry, it can be predicted that this is where your electron pair geometry is going to be organized and more dense around those central atoms, especially when you start adding more atoms and therefore more electron pairs, okay? 
So you can use Lewis diagrams to start out because that gives you an idea about where the atoms are bonded. Then you have to start considering the manipulation of the electron pairs and where there are allowed and not allowed regions. Okay. So molecules then can be really described in two general ways. Molecules with no lone electron pairs and molecules with one or more lone electron pairs. Okay. And so that's a simple way to look at reactivity too, I should add. Okay, so I'm going to stop there because <laughs> that was the little brief discussion of the geometric consideration of chemistry. Now there's more to it than that. All right, much more obviously. And there's an algebraic consideration and a fluxional interpretation of chemistry. And those all three together must have, you must have some understanding of them before you start thinking about how molecules react in a cell. Even when they're in a pathway and you know that, you know, the pathway, you know, will convert hexose to hexose 6-phosphate to fructose 6-phosphate to uh, glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate and dihydroxyacetone phosphate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, down like like pathway. You know the pathway because it's been worked out. What I'm trying to get you to see is the chemistry of those intermediates and therefore the chemistry of the enzymes involved in those reactions are all functional at the level of algebra, geometry, calculus, and that those mathematical systems all are understood via the rationality of logic. And that's how science functions. So next time, I'm going to go, go into then the modifications that you see in biological systems that lead to epigenetic alterations in gene expression. So I'm going to go into some detail about the methylation patterning, how you methylate nucleic acids, and how you demethylate them. And during those processing modes, how that can have an activating and deactivating effect on gene expression. But that's for next time. Okay. So I'm going to stop here. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 25th day of April, 2022. This is Cytoepigenetics 3B. So I'm going to post these back to back today. And uh, with that, and hopefully you get a good grounding in uh, biological ontology ontological perspectives and chemical ontological perspectives and how you can enjoin those by using a dialectic so that you can arrive at good premises and conclusions as to the alteration of metabolism in a living system during uh, the transition from a healthy state to a pathological state. And that's what we're trying to do here in Authentic Biochemistry, among a lot of other things. All right. Uh, bye for now.